welcome back to the City of the Great King podcast, episode four. Hello. I'm glad that you are here as I stretch myself ready for this one. Episode four of the CGK podcast. Welcome back. You know, I've had two people over the past couple days, actually they were both yesterday, two people have told me that they've listened to the podcast. Yes. Thank you. Two people told me. No, they told me that they listened to some of the episodes and they were giving some feedback and whatever. And two different people told me they listened to episode two. Now, this is not the Augustine ones, my Sunday school, but episode two of the weekly podcast. They listened to it and I sound different. I sounded very different in that one compared to the first episode and the third episode. And... I said, you're totally wrong. That's incorrect. No, I didn't say that. I said, yes, I did sound different because I saw people who wear lab coats who put this freezing stuff in your mouth and then they take things out and then they put things in and they make you bleed and they make you talk funny after and then you pay them thousands of dollars to do this stuff. Isn't that crazy? We pay these people to torture us and... Yeah, it's amazing. And so that is the reason that I sounded so... I I tried to hide it. I tried to cover up for it. But that is the reason that my voice sounds different. One person was like, you didn't didn't even sound like it was you who was doing it. Oh, it was. It was me. But I paid some guy in a lab coat a bunch of money to... to go make me bleed and talk funny. It's great. Well, welcome... For this one, I think I'm sounding better now. Um, I want to talk today about a topic that's very important to me. Anyone who knows me personally for some time, uh, it doesn't take too long before I start, before I get onto this topic. I think it's very important. And as Christians, this is, uh, especially as Protestant Christians, as Reformed-leaning Christians, we shy away from this topic to our detriment. even to our shame, like there's so much to gain from this topic, and that is that of beauty. Beauty. I love beautiful things. I love looking at beautiful things. I love using beautiful things. I love seeing things work in harmony as they are supposed to, as they are created to. I get, I don't want to say made fun of, but people will kind of pick on me a little bit for... The fact that I like fashion. I like when my... Uh, so so when I go out and I, I dress a certain way, I try to always look put together. My colors go together. My even I even pay attention to fabrics a little bit. The different type of fabric that I'll wear. What I'm wearing ha- each has a purpose to it, whether I wear a belt or not, a watch or not, how high the tie clip is, how my hair is done. I care about fashion. I like it. I it, it is a subject that I enjoy. And some people will choose to use certain words to describe me for that. And I just flip them off and say, I don't care. This is a, a fine thing. Um, I'm simplifying those, <laughs> those uh, interactions a little bit. But the reason that I, I care about the way that I look and present myself is because of this topic of beauty, because of my theology on beauty. And I am one who believes that beauty should be re-included as a category of doctrine even. 
that to our neglect we do not currently do. Now we talk a lot about God's goodness, God's mercy, God's love, and surely the, some of these uh, categories and, and characteristics of God will take greater center stage than others. Uh, for instance, redemption. That is arguably the, or is the fundamental theme of scripture, is redemption. It is the story of redemption. So no, beauty is not going to be as important scripturally as a category of thought or contemplation as redemption. And yet it should not be neglected as a category of doctrine. And it has major theologians as proponents. I'm not just saying this in a vacuum, but Augustine was one, Aquinas, Calvin, Edwards. Actually, I'm holding in my hand right now uh, a little book. It's this little green book. I think they gave it away at one of the big conferences a few years ago. Jonathan Edwards on beauty. You know, he had a lot to write or a lot to say about this subject. And it is a book that I greatly appreciated. Of course, I love Edwards. I, I tried to read all that I can about Edwards. And he wrote a lot about this subject. It also has a part in Christian history. If you go across Europe, you don't have to go to too very far before you see beautiful cathedrals. The, the old churches that were built in the medieval times and before are just so captivating. Every uh, chisel on there was purposeful and shaped and fashioned for a purpose. And, and the different ways that it's uh, styled... It's beautiful. Even in North America, we have traces of it in Quebec City and Montreal. We have examples of this beauty in the architecture of a church or the cathedral being built. Same with paintings, the old paintings of Michelangelo or other works of art. There's a major part in Christian history that relates to beauty and art, artistic expression. Now, us Protestants, we historically have somewhat shied away from focusing much on beauty. And I know, I get it. We, we don't want to be lumped in with the Roman Catholics. Like, I get it. They built these beautiful cathedrals, but on the inside, they, they preach a false gospel. Right? What, what good is your outward beauty if what you are on the inside is dead or gross? That, that's not even beauty anymore. So, yes, I know we don't want to be lumped in with the Roman Catholics, so we, and we don't want to get trapped with the iconology and, and vain imagery that fills, uh, that, that often went with these beautiful cathedrals. And so we, we got rid of all of that. We focused just on simple worship um, buildings and, and encounters, experiences, all that type of thing. It's, it's very simple. We, we preach the word, which we should do. But what we do is we shy away from ever doing beautiful things, making beautiful things. And again, I say to, to much neglect, uh, to neglect of, um, of what could be very beneficial to us. We do not do beautiful things. Recovering beauty though can aid in recovering a Christian life. And that might sound like a bold claim but consider how it is built inside each one of us to see beauty and to long for it. We notice a, a beautiful woman. 
we notice a beautiful interaction of somebody helping another person. We notice beautiful cars, even. There are a lot of things that we can see and experience in the world that we describe as beautiful. How about the works of creation? Uh, if you've been to Niagara Falls, I know for us born and raised in Southern Ontario, it's kind of a, you know, a very normal thing. But for others, when you see the, the Niagara Falls, it's beautiful what you're looking at. And I think the beauty, this longing for beauty that's put inside of us when it is used properly and, and appreciated within the proper context it can actually aid in recovering a Christian life. The Christian life is meant to be beautiful. Our mission is beautiful. This isn't just a dreary life where all we're supposed to do is be gloomy and despair at everything. There is victory at the end of this life, and it is accomplished through beautiful workings of the Spirit through His people. Okay, so I want to ask a question. I like this question. Art. What does art reflect. Think about that for a second. What does art reflect? Now here are some suggestions that uh, of answers that people give. What does art reflect? Uh, it reflects primarily the image represented. Okay, that's, pr that's pretty basic, but art primarily reflects the image that is being presented. You're uh, painting a tiger what is the art reflecting? It's simply reflecting tigerness. It is the image itself. That, that is where the meaning is. That is as far as it goes. Others say that art reflects the message conveyed by the images. So let's go back to our tiger. It's not just reflecting the image of a tiger, but more the image, or, or I mean the, the message that is conveyed by the image of a tiger. So it might represent strength. And that is what it's reflecting. Uh, or stripes and um, blending in, maybe. Sharp teeth. Like, you know, like a message conveyed by the image. Others will say that art primarily reflects the skill of the artist. That's how you can tell the difference between something that's very, that, that's poor art or good, beautiful art is the skill of the artist or the, the person who made it. And yet, while it, so that can be partially true or supplementarily true. I do not think any of those are primarily what art reflects. It's actually it's somewhat simpler. Art reflects the artist himself or the artist herself. There's a, a book about Christopher Nolan. You know Christopher Nolan. He's produced many great films. Uh, long, epic story films. He... Uh, made one of my favorite movies of all time, Interstellar. There's a book about him, and it talks about some... Uh, it, it interviews him and asks him all sorts of questions. And he mentions in an interview that so much of what goes into his movies are reflections from his own life, but people don't know that. Right, so we just see this this great end product of all the editors and the actors and the storyline coming together and it flows on the screen in front of you and you don't really think about the artist who created it, that it is a reflection of them. But when Chris Nolan puts together a movie and he, he 
helps write it, he sets the scene for it, he sets the vision for it, and he approves the final product, it is... He's the one who said that his movies are a reflection of his own life. But if you don't know him, you just don't know that. All you see is, you know, Interstellar. He's, the spaceship's going through space and they're trying to find a, a more habitable world. But it actually reflects Christopher Nolan himself. Art reflects the artist. Now, we know this and we would be more comfortable with this in slightly other terminology. Uh, change art and artist to creation and creator. Creation reflects the creator. We're, we're comfortable with that language because, uh, especially if you're Christian listening to this, you believe in some form of creation. The world did not just come about as the result of an accident of a bunch of atoms together in like a pin-sized atom which then exploded and it was just kind of like this random gasic thing. No, it, it was purposefully, intricately, artistically created. We were, creation was, the world was, the universe was. Creation reflects the creator. Similarly, art then reflects the artist. So then the question must be asked, has God created art? And if he has, what makes it art? Of course, by now you know my answer. Obviously, the Lord has created art. He's created all that there is. He gives us the gifts in our lives, which are uh, by his hand. He gives us the skills even to be creating our own works of art. Has he created art? Absolutely. But what makes it art? I would contend that what makes it art is that it is created beautifully. There's my definition. What is art? That which is created beautifully. Now, depending on how you apply such a definition, that can be redundant. So you talk about God. Apply that definition to God. What makes it art is that it is created beautifully. Well, can God create something that isn't beautiful? Uh, we as Christians, believe that God holds all of the essence within himself, and he is the embodiment of the categories that we experience on earth. We experience love on earth because God is love. He is loving. He, he gives us the ability to love as a reflection of his own character. Similarly with grace, we can experience grace in this life because he is gracious. He is full of grace. So, the definition of created beautifully can be redundant because everything God creates is beautiful. He can't make something that isn't beautiful. Now, this also leads me to, um, and I purposefully said this earlier, but go against something I said earlier. I said we could create poor art or good art. I actually don't think there is such a thing as poor art. There's no, or as, or ugly art. It's only art if it's beautiful, that which is created beautifully. If it's not beautiful, it's not art anymore. So, art is that which is created beautifully, but, so then that leads to the next question, what makes it beautiful? Is it just in the eye of the beholder, that which is beautiful? We have this idea that beauty is this subjective thing, like, 
I can notice something is beautiful, but the person beside me thinks it's ugly. And that's just completely okay, because it's just in the eye of the beholder. Is beauty that way? Is any attribute of God that way, where it's completely subjective and at the mercy of the person who is judging it, the person looking at it? Can we be in the position of judge over a characteristic of God? We can't be. Everything God creates is beautiful. We don't get the cha we don't get the authority to say that he created that which is something that's ugly because he didn't. He can't. It is a reflection of himself. So beauty as a category is actually not this overwhelming subjective just in the eye of the beholder. It is an objective category that flows out of God's character. So I ask again, what makes it beautiful? What makes something beautiful? And I really like how Augustine put it. The working definition that he went was there are three categories that make something beautiful. Measure, shape, and order. Measure, shape, and order are what categorizes beauty. So that is when something is made with a purpose, not in, in excess of what that purpose is or short of what that purpose is, but specifically, perfectly to the specifications of what it, it needs to do or accomplish or be, <clears throat> excuse me, and then it is used that way. So you can think of some of this in the opposite. If it's measure, shape, and order that categorizes beauty, then disorder or out of shape or completely immeasured is what is not beautiful. That's what is ugly. To put it in some other types of examples, you can use a wrench to put hammer in a nail, let's say. You, you can do that, but the wrench is not designed for that. The measure isn't great for it. The shape, it's really not shaped properly for that. And it's not ordered to do that type of task. Now you, you can get away with it in a pinch, but you need a hammer. When the hammer, which is specifically designed for that nail, does the job which it is accomplished for, and you're not using a sledgehammer just for one nail, you, you use what is proportional to the task that's in front of you, that is a beautiful arrangement. Now it's very simple, it's just a hammer and a nail, so we can put this in another context. The love of a husband and a wife after a marriage, after, after a long marriage. They know for what they were created, for whom they were created, and the role they were created for. I think, not only do I think, but it is true that it is beautiful when a Christian husband operates in the role that God created him for, took his marching orders from God to lead his wife, to lead his family, to disciple his family, to protect his family and provide for his family. And it is beautiful when the wife knows what she was, what she is made for, whom she is made for, and in the task and role that God gave to her, her marching orders, to nourish the household, right? To follow the lead then 
of the husband, to nurture, to guide, these, to, to provide a, a place of comfort. These are things, some of the tasks that, um, that, that the woman is created for. And when these two partners are living in the roles that they are assigned and created by God to walk into, it is a beautiful picture of love and respect, of leadership and submission. This dance that plays out between a husband and a wife who love each other, respect one another, and do what the Lord has made them for. That is objectively beautiful. And I think that's one of the reasons why older couples can say that their marriage is better so late in life than, than early on. Even though the honeymoon passion is kind of gone 30 years later, it is a more beautiful relationship. Or the husband will say that his wife is even more beautiful now than she was when she was 25. No, like, she doesn't look like she's 25 anymore. She's aged and, and all that. But beauty is so much more than just the uh, what your body looks like at 25. There's a lot that goes into beauty and if it's an objective category of measure, shape, and order, then that married couple has something far more beautiful 30 years down the line than they do the day that they were married. It's taken its shape. It's found proper order in the right measure. So it's more of an objective thing than we give it credit for, beauty is. So we've kind of already got to this, but what then is beauty rooted in? Where do we find the category of beauty? What's it rooted in? It's rooted in God himself. God is the one who holds beauty. He is beautiful. So beauty is rooted in God himself, and then what he creates is beautiful. And who is the pinnacle, or what or who is the pinnacle of his creation? People. We are. Us. Humans. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation, which means we are the pinnacle of beauty. We're the ones made in his image. He created a whole lot of things. He created the, the Niagara Falls that I referred to earlier. The Grand Canyon. Oh, I want to be, I want to stand before the Grand Canyon. I see pictures and I, I long to see it in person. But he creates a lot of beautiful things out there, but these are not things in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We are the pinnacle of his beautiful creation. We are what is said in Genesis, in the creation accounts, as that which is very good, as opposed to simply good when he was done creating. Now, this makes me think of another question. Why does God create certain things then where we, the pinnacle of his creation, don't even, can't even appreciate. Uh, consider the ocean, okay? Uh, the water, or the earth is, pro is covered in what? 70, 80% water? That's how much of our planet is just water. Like 70 something percent. And in that 70%, in these water bodies, are full of hundreds and thousands of different types of creatures, of fish and other sea creatures down there. The, we certainly can see some of them. We go fishing. We, we have aquariums and whatever. But the vast, vast, vast majority 
of creatures in the sea, of life in the sea, will never be seen by any human being ever. There are so many things in the ocean that are created that have beauty. Some of it's so interesting what is down there, and we will never see it. Why does God make that? Now again, we can fish, like we can catch fish and eat it. So there is a purpose to what's in there for sure. But again, the vast majority of fish won't be caught by humans and eaten. They'll just die. Why does God create these things? If there's not even anybody to see it and appreciate it. He, he does it simply for the sake that it is, it is beautiful. That, the Lord took joy in what he has made. He filled an ocean with creatures that nobody will ever see simply because it is beautiful. He creates this whole universe out there that every, seems like every year they're, they're just pushing how expansive our universe is from what we can see and how far our telescopes are going and energies that are coming, like all this type of stuff. Why does God create these things? And an answer is because it is beautiful. Because it is beautiful is a reason to create something and appreciate something. Now, I'm, I'm very uplifting towards this idea of beauty, and I've been speaking very positively about it, but this should also help inform us then into the ugliness of sin. And we have to understand that God creates everything beautiful, but everything created in the domain of mankind is corrupted, tainted by sin. Uh, this we see in the in the account of Adam and Eve, God pronounced a curse upon Adam, upon mankind, uh, for his sin. He cursed him, cursed the woman, cursed the serpent. But he didn't just curse them. He he put a curse on the earth too. All that is in our world is affected by that curse of sin. Everything is corrupted, everything tainted. So we cannot perceive of beauty in its purity that we could pre-fall, that Adam could. We, we, we have fallen senses even, that we appreciate forms of beauty or shades of beauty, but we don't have that which is truly, purely beautiful. Because everything we interact with is tainted by sin, except for the Lord. But this issue has led, uh, causes there to be detractors of, the con of contemplation on the subject of beauty. There are some who would not be very pleased about this type of talk on beauty through church history, and some detractors of this idea would include John Owen, Karl Barth, even Luther to a degree had some he did have some good things to say about it, but he also, he put a big emphasis on this idea that we are very fallen in sin. So we can contemplate beauty and see that which is beautiful, but it will always carry in it this, this taintedness, this corruption. Because we cannot hold that which is purely beautiful. We don't see it. We don't have it. And I'm not just talking about looks and aesthetics. Um, Again, our definition was more objective than that, measure, shape, and order. But this, is, this goes even to living according to the purpose for which we are made. 
let's take that marriage image that I brought up earlier of when the husband and the wife are living in the role, have their marching orders from God, doing as he calls them to do, and that beautiful picture, well, a lot of times we don't have that. And nobody has that all the time. That same couple can erupt into a fight that night, and they'll say things that are not in accordance with the role that they are assigned or they will hurt one another. It won't be very beautiful because it's no longer living out the image that God has uh, purposed for them. In their sin, they distort it. We distort it. When we live lives of laziness and we do not accomplish tasks which we are supposed to accomplish, we are, not, we are doing ugliness in that moment. We're not doing that which is beautiful measured has shape and order the way when we don't live according to the purpose for which we are made we are seeing the ugliness of sin and the taintedness of beauty so we can simultaneously be the pinnacle of beauty in god's creation and yet so ugly because that which is supposed to be the most beautiful does not do what it's meant to do we use our bodies to just feed our sinful desires, to feed our lusts, instead of recognizing that we are temples of the Holy Spirit on the inside, according to the Apostle Paul. And living this life of faith, not by sight, and instead we shake our fist in the air and yell at God for how dare he do this or that or allow this or that. The sin in us is very ugly. And we don't live according to the purpose for which we are made. So what is beautiful, though, and and what I'm, all I'm trying to get, what I'm really trying to get at, is that to revive this idea of beauty includes the fact that we do partake in legitimately beautiful things. And what is beautiful is when humans do live in accordance with how they're made. No, we won't do it perfectly. We will stumble, we will fall, and we will do that till the day we die and we are raised to life again. We are with the Lord and sin is dealt with and is no more. Until then, we have to live in this reality of there are be legitimately beautiful things because everything God's made is, is beautiful. Everything is corrupted on this earth because of the power of sin, and yet it retains an element of beauty. We are still made in the image of God and retain beauty in, our, in ourselves. And creation is still beautiful, and we do still long for beauty. But beauty untethered to theology is just lust. If you're just seeking after that which is beautiful on the outside, and you're not tethering it to a good theology, you're, that's lust. That's all that you're getting. It's the abuse of a good gift. And Jesus spoke this way of things appearing beautiful on the outside but being dead on the inside. He was talking to Pharisees in Matthew 23. He's really ripping into them. And he says, starting in verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Now, were they right to clean the outside of the cup and the plate? Yes. Cups and plates should be cleaned. That's part of the purpose. Getting into the purpose thing again, you are supposed to clean cups and plates. But on the inside... This, so he's obviously using an image there. Inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. They're cleaning the outside, but 
but on the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. He goes on in 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. End quote. So, anything, something can appear beautiful on the outside, but on the inside it is dead. It is not beautiful. It is ugly. And good theology will teach us to not just chase after that which is beautiful on the outside, but that which is holistically beautiful, actually beautiful, which doesn't disinclude the outside. As I said before, we can legitimately appreciate the sight of, of a beautiful woman as a man. Um, but to untether that from good theology is just to lust after her and to want her just for the looks on the outside and not in accordance with how with the purpose that the Lord has for her and the, the marriage relationship and all of that. And as I'm getting ready to close here, is appreciating beauty simply vain? Is this a vain endeavor to appreciate beauty? And again, you can probably tell how I'm going with this. On the contrary, appreciating beauty beauty is using something as part of its purpose. R.C. Sproul is one of my favorite pastors. I've learned so much from him, and he's something of an outlier amongst Protestants. In the church that he was a pastor of for so long, it's St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida. They made their church incredibly beautiful. Stained glass windows, their uh, organ was made very intricately. They have Paraments, which is like colored hangings of different colors that uh, represent different things. They have paintings there. Like They have a lot of beautiful things in their worship center, which is very different than most Protestant churches. But I'm just going to read the... Uh, this is from their website under the heading, Our Place of Worship, the Sanctuary. This is what they have to say. Why do they do this? The sanctuary is a holy place for the worship of a holy God. The architectural design of the sanctuary is in accordance with the traditional cruciform pattern. Worshippers enter through the darkness of the narthex and into the light of the sanctuary, radiating from the stained glass windows adorning the chancel and sanctuary. This is a reminder that when we come to worship in the sanctuary, we cross the threshold of the secular to the sacred, from the common to the uncommon, from the profane to the holy, from darkness to light. We believe that we should worship as God's word informs us. In worship, we preach the word of God, we sing hymns according to the word of God, and we pray according to the word of God. Our worship is simple, spiritual, and reverent. We strive for excellence in every area of our worship service in order to reflect the holiness and majesty of the Lord. And we are continually challenged to improve what we do for his sake. End quote. So you're hearing that, how they created beautiful architecture and things because it's a reflection of this holy God. It's informing it. It's reminding us of what we're doing when we come to worship. There's... It's not vain to appreciate beauty or to build beautiful things. It's actually, um, it's part of our reminder to worship. It's part of taking joy in what the Lord has made and who he is. 
And this reflects even the theme verse of this podcast, Psalm 48, 1. Psalm 48, 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. That's the theme verse for this podcast. It has beautiful elevation is in that verse referring to this city of the great king, which we will understand to be spiritual Jerusalem and all that. But beauty is in the Bible and in creation because God is beautiful. It is a reflection, and I'm summarizing basically everything now that we've talked about. Beauty is in the Bible and in creation because God is beautiful. It's a reflection of the artist who gives us beautiful things and causes us to long for beauty as part of his design. And that's how you live a beautiful life, when you live according to your design. It's objective. Live as he would have you live, as he's revealed in his word. That is what is actually beautiful. Um, Alright. So that is... That is beauty. This is one of my favorite topics. We'll probably talk about it again sometime. I'm glad you have listened to episode four. Go appreciate beautiful things, create beautiful things, and go win the nations. Goodbye.